0: Hello everybody, this is Kevin Witham and welcome to Season 3 of the Common Grounds Unity Podcast. Jesus valued unity and prayed for it, that we may all be one. We believe unity is best achieved through relationships rather than beginning with disagreements over doctrine, practice, or ideology. We value the gathering, breaking bread and sharing a cup of coffee or your favorite beverage. We invite you to gather with another Christian outside your particular family of churches and tell others that Unity starts with a cup of coffee. So grab a cup and let's get started with another episode of the Common Grounds Unity Podcast.
1: We are excited to have you with us for episode 110 of the Common Grounds Unity podcast. It is hard to believe that we're already at this number of episodes, and we hope that you guys have enjoyed all the different guests that we've had on. And today, Kevin Witham is not co-hosting. We have a special guest, and that is Mitch Mitchell, who also co-hosted on episodes 45 and 46. Mitch recently retired after serving 43 years in full-time ministry and now teaches and serves as a life coach and mediator. He graduated with a degree in biblical studies from Abilene Christian University, and he and his wife, Jan, have been on staff at six different churches and have two children and three grandchildren. In these next two episodes, we're discussing family systems theory and how it relates to leadership, whether in the church, family, or any other relational context. Our guest is Steve Cuss, who wrote the book, Managing Leadership Anxiety, Yours and Theirs. Steve grew up in Perth, Australia. He came to the U.S. and received a B.A. in Theological Studies from Johnson University and a Master's of Divinity in Hebrew Scriptures, Systems Theory, and Systemic Poverty from Emmanuel Christian Seminary. Steve is ordained in the Independent Christian Churches and he has served as a hospital chaplain and then as lead pastor at Discovery Christian Church. He's the founder of Capable Life, an organization devoted to helping leaders and parents lower reactivity and increase connection. Steve is married to Lisa, and together they have two sons and a daughter. And when he's not working, you can find him laughing with his family, knee-deep in a trout stream, or trying a guitar he can't afford in a local music store. Welcome, Steve, to the podcast.
2: Thanks, Tina. Great to be with you guys.
3: Uh, Steve, it's great to uh, meet you today and uh, have been following you on Twitter and uh, really appreciate uh, the thoughts uh, you have on family systems theory, especially the book, Managing uh, Leadership Anxiety, Yours and Theirs. So give us a little brief background. Uh, What's your story? What's your faith journey? And uh, uh, while you're at it, is it true? I heard a rumor that you might have hypnotized a chicken once in your life. So catch us up there.
2: Yeah, the the chicken hypnosis rumor is true. I, I think I've hypnotized chickens on four continents, <laughs> uh, and actually, I started working my way up the food chain of birds, and I got to a turkey. I was in Paraguay once and hypnotized a turkey. So, <laughs> I, I want to work my way up to an emu and and see if I still survive to tell the tale. But yeah, I'm I am the second of three generations of cuss chicken hypnotists that I'm aware of. So. Yes, a, a lesser known, uh, untapped resource that I offer there. there yeah. Yeah, no, I grew up in Western Australia, um, and grew up unchurched. And then I became, it's a very common story in Australian Christians, but got to a, a youth group as an unchurched kid, um, gave my life to Christ. My older sister had a lot to do with that. And, um, in many ways, kind of kept that unchurched mindset. All my family, my sister and I are the only believers in our family, so we come from a very secular heritage. And uh, I went to America for Bible college, um, partly to chase Fred Craddock. He's a preaching hero of mine, Hmm. and uh, just loved his approach and his posture and wanted to preach like him. And I don't hold a candle to Fred Craddock, but that's what got me to Johnson because that's where he graduated from and used to be a professor and um, stumbled into chaplaincy by accident because I needed a job for a year when my wife and I were brand new married, and that changed my life, and then did my Master's of of, uh, Divinity Theology, and then I was at a large church in Las Vegas for a number of years, and then a lead pastor here in Colorado.
1: Great. Your book, Managing Leadership Anxiety, Yours and Theirs, focuses on family systems theory. Can you tell us just a little bit about what is family systems theory and an overview of the ideas that you wanted to share in your book?
2: That's a great question, Tina. Systems theory is so fascinating because so few people have heard of it. Um, so your average marriage counselor has been trained in it. But even, even though the theory is several decades old, it really got going in the 60s, it's never really made its way off the therapy couch. But it's such a universal human theory. I find it very helpful in my faith as well because what systems theory does is, is teach you how to notice anxiety in any situation it's at its core, that's what system theory does, put you in a room and learn to notice the anxiety. And the problem with system theory is it first makes you notice it in yourself, like we always want to look at anxiety in other people, but, but it's always in yourself. And so as a pastor, for example, it's been so helpful, if I get frustrated or hurt by critics, or people who take cheap shots at pastors, that kind of stuff. I can get stuck in a self-pity or a a judgment, judgmentalism with those people. Systems theory really requires me to seek the Lord and see, well, what am I doing that's contributing to the problem? Uh, So it's essentially the skill of noticing anxiety. You can imagine how life-saving that was as a chaplain when I'd be going into these highly anxious situations. Mm. And what you're looking for in systems theory is a couple of things, and this is getting a little deeper. You're looking for assumptions. So, I've been trained to listen to people talk and hear the assumptions in their voice. And anytime we believe an assumption that is not true, we're going to be anxious. So an assumption I might hold about myself is that I must make everybody happy or that I must anxiously calm you down so I can be calmed down. The uh, perfectionists hold a lot of assumptions about themselves and their work. So it teaches you to notice assumptions and it teaches you to, to notice, um, recurring stuck, Patterns of behavior. This is where it gets really powerful. So maybe the simplest idea of that would be if you've ever tried to get a child out for school in the morning on time. <laughs> uh, that's probably a recurring pattern of behavior, and you can be frustrated at your child until you notice the things that you are doing that are perpetuating the problem. So those would be two tools. Some deeper things that systems theory do is it helps you notice attempted solutions. So, if your child is sleeping in and going a little slow in the morning, you making your child's lunch for them, kind of rescuing them, would be called an attempted solution. That's perpetuating them sleeping in. That would be a a simpler way to look at it. So those would just be three of the dynamics. There's several dynamics, but those would be three that once you start noticing those in your life and in your relationships, in your workplace and home place, man, it can it can revolutionize your life and your team culture and team health. It has all kinds of implications. And I guess I should say as a pastor, what System Series is trying to do is get to the heart of false belief. The reason I'm anxious and I'm operating this way is I'm believing something that's false. And that's what I love as a pastor is I can help people connect to God through the lens of these things.
3: So uh, and and back to that belief system and the false belief uh, you discuss uh, in your book, true self and false self. I thought that was very interesting. I know uh, uh, Thomas Merton and Richard Rohr talk a lot about false self and just discuss that a little bit with us further. You just mentioned it and uh, even the shadow side of your gifting, I know ties into that, but why that's so important for especially leaders in church settings or any setting to understand that concept, false self versus true self.
2: Yeah, we you know we are really indebted to our Catholic sisters and brothers for that language, true self, false self. And Thomas Merton is probably the most famous. My favorite author on this is Thomas Keating. Um, he has this wonderful story. Thomas Keating was an abbot at a monastery in Aspen, Colorado, and maybe that's one of the reasons I like him, as he was just down the road. But he has this wonderful story about a former alcoholic becoming a um, monk and coming to his monastery, Thomas Keating's monastery. And this guy used to be so proud he could drink anyone under the table before he was a Christian before he went into becoming a monk, he could drink anyone under the table. And Keating says we bring him in. And of course, Keating's monks have a poverty and a simplicity vow. And one of the practices they do is they fast, they're in the regular habit of fasting. And Keating said, this guy became proud of fasting any of us under the table. And I think that's a wonderful example of true self, false self, where this guy never really got to the root of this competitiveness, this need to be the best. And he just took all of that addictive sense of him with alcohol and turned it into an addictive approach to spirituality. Where instead of drinking people under the table, he fasted people under the table. Uh, Every one of us have gifts from God that we twist into slavery. So in my case, I'm I'm a good pastor. I'm good at connecting with people. I'm intuitive with people. That's the gift. But the slavery is I need people's approval. That's the shadow side or the exaggerated edge of it. Perfectionists usually do things really well with great attention to detail, great care. But the shadow side or the slavery side is the incessant need to do it perfectly. One of the most easy to spot is many of us can't tell. We like to help people. We like to be helpful, but we can't tell the difference between people's need and our incessant need to be needed. This kind of compulsion to rush in and always help. I know as a pastor, when someone come to my church and they'll say to me, we've tried three other churches and we got hurt by the pastor or whatever, if I'm not careful, I will catch that anxiety and believe something false, which is I'm, it's like I'm walking on a tightrope. Um, well, that's anx- anxiety. Uh, so, so learning to notice your tendencies and your triggers can be profoundly helpful in staying relaxed into God's presence instead of striving on your own.
1: When you're talking about that, it, it's super interesting and insightful but when people are struggling to be just like Jesus rather than following Jesus can you talk about your thoughts on this and and give us some insights on that?
2: Yeah yeah that's probably the most controversial thing I put in the book is that we should stop <laughs> trying to be like Jesus and I, I'm intentionally stirring the pot there but I also believe it I'm not I, mm-hmm. I believe what I'm saying I, I think particularly Western Christians there is no end. To our capacity to become the center of our own universe,
1: mm-hmm.
2: and there's no end to our need to control everything. And so, in the New Testament, all of the Christ-like language is in the passive voice. Paul talks about Christ is formed in you. But I think the Western Christian, particularly, we think I'm going to be, fo- I'm going to do the forming. And so, I think what we do is we take Christ-like language. And we, there's two things that happen. We then make ourselves the center of spiritual transformation. That, let's just focus on that one. So like take the fruit of the Spirit. We read the fruit of the Spirit where Paul says the fruit of the Spirit is love. And then he has this big list, right? Joy, peace, patience. The way my Greek professor taught me, I don't know if this is accurate, but I thought this is wonderful. My Greek professor said there should be a colon after love. It should be that the fruit of the Spirit is love which looks like joy, patience. I I love that. I really like that. But what we can do as humans is we can read that list and we can say, you know what? I'm not very patient. I'm going to try to be more patient this week. And maybe we stand in the slowest, longest line in the supermarket, or maybe we drive under the speed limit. We do these like human hacks. That's fine. But at the end of that week, we're going to become a more patient legalist. It's We're not actually encountering Christ. It's like a human improvement project. That Mm -hmm. It's not the fruit of the spirit. It's the fruit of the human. Mm -hmm. So I think the problem is we're trying too much and we're not dying enough. I think if I want to connect to Christ, I should figure out what's making me so impatient, what false need I have, and I should die to that and then leave God to do God's work. Maybe God will make me a more... God is not particularly interested in making me a better human. God is more interested in me worshiping him with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. So I just think we unintentionally turn spiritual transformation into improvement. And then the second issue I have with being like Christ is we'll never get there. Uh, You make a list of all the things that God can do, that Jesus can do, that you and I can never do. No matter how hard we try... Because Jesus is God and we are not God. And so what happens is we live in this perpetual guilt of falling short. Reaching for a target God never asked us to do. All Jesus asked us to do is die to self and follow him. I can do that and worship. I think God commands me to worship. But when I try to be like Christ, that's an unfair game. Because the reason that like the list of things Jesus can do that I can't do. That's the list that causes me to worship him as my sovereign God. Um, Yeah,
0: so that's what I would say about that. Hey, everybody, we'll be right back with the rest of this episode. We want to take a moment to thank Mission Alive and Central Christian College of the Bible for sponsoring this episode. Mission Alive equips leaders to start innovative communities of faith focused on transforming marginal communities. They provide church planning, training, apprenticeships, consulting, and discipleship cohorts, among other resources. They can also train you to be a nationally accredited coach through Catalyze Coach Training. This 28-week credential will equip you to impact and transform your church organization, leadership, and ministry. Learn how God can transform your life and ministry by going to missionalive.org. That's missionalive.org or emailing them at contact missionalive.org. And Central Christian College of the Bible has low-cost, innovative, and flexible master's programs in ministry leadership and preaching that they want you to know about. These two-year programs are designed to be one-third online, one-third on campus, and one-third supervised ministry by an expert in your interest area. The mentoring courses can offer credit in your local ministry graduates like Dr. Don Mahardi and Jonathan Curtis are impacting the kingdom in deeper, more meaningful ways because of their education at CCCB. So find out more at cccb.edu front slash graduate. That's cccb.edu front slash graduate.
1: And then do you see Steve, how then we judge others because they also are not they're not living up to that thing of how not only we judge ourselves by that standard, but then we also judge others and they can never live up to being like Christ because they're also not like Christ, but then right we have a higher expectation of others as well as ourselves.
2: It gets pretty sophisticated because okay. What we do when we say you should be more like Christ, I think we mean you should be more like me times infinity. So like let's take someone like myself. I like to be a gentle shepherd. I do not like to be that prophetic edge. So the part of Jesus I love is the let the little children come to me part. So I think you should be more like that. and I just look at myself and I say, "I'm not very gentle. Jesus is gentle times a million. But then you take like the prophetic person that loves to put us in our place and he or she is saying, look at how Jesus turned the tables and got out the whip. We should be more like that. And all we're doing is we're creating God in our image. Mm -hmm. I just think that's idolatry. So, you know, Jesus is so infinitely other than I am. It fills me. It fills my heart with awe and wonder and gratitude. And I can't help but worship. When I have a true encounter with Christ, I cannot help but worship. But when I'm trying to be like Christ, I just end up on like a legalism treadmill to nowhere. And it's, it's spiritually exhausting.
3: It's really good. I think uh, I had before I retired 40 some years in Churches of Christ and then in International Church of Christ. And I think the unhealthy system part I saw, and I'm very similar to you, is a leader needs to, quote unquote, make it happen. And so the leaders under him need to make it happen. And so the farther yeah. you go up the ladder, right? In an unhealthy system, you you kind of become the, uh, uh, I'm okay with pastor. I really like that term, although we we use lead evangelists in our ICOC churches. I'm not actually as, as excited about that term, but uh, it, it gives a lot of power to the person who's leading, which kind of enters into maybe the last thing we do uh, on this segment is later you mentioned, and maybe we just do differentiation, but you mentioned differentiation and triangles, and how in family systems theory that can be a problem. I've seen that so much looking back. Now I didn't know what it was until a few years ago, taking a class in family systems theory. But uh, I think we we become the uh, we we become the god at the top of our church, right? And Jesus is ahead of the church, and we we can do that content right we don't do it relationally right. So can you speak to that a little bit before we close out this particular episode?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think you've brought up something that's quite deep and complex, but I I do think there's a big problem. I think some people do put the pastor on a pedestal and make us more than we are. One of the ways that shows up to me is I, I have a college degree in the Bible. Bible was my major in college, and it was amazing. I got to be with PhD scholars, and it was incredible. And then I did a master's degree where Bible is my major, Master of Divinity. Well, so that means I know a lot of Bible, and I've been trained how to study it and make meaning out of it in the form of a sermon where you can have some application. But that doesn't mean I'm close to Jesus. That just means I'm well-trained. But in our churches, we measure spiritual depth through Bible knowledge. And I'm always going to be one of the ones in the congregation that knows the most Bible because I spent seven years full time studying it. You'd hope I would. But I think we can all fall into the trap of believing that just because I know a lot of Bible and can make meaning out of it for you, that means I must be a spiritual leader. Not so. That's not, I mean, Jesus actually spoke against that very thing. And then I think other people, particularly if they're dysfunctional, they've not dealt with some of their own trauma, they don't put us on a pedestal. They treat us like we're a monster. You know, We're not to be trusted and highly suspicious. And it's like we're walking on eggshells around them. So I just find if a church and a pastor can let that pastor be human-sized and do human-sized work under the power of the Holy Spirit, I think it's, it's such a healthier culture. Uh, and I, I'm very grateful that my church allowed me to do that. They let me be human sized and I tended to resist the kind of guru status and the monster status that, that can happen. I don't know if that's what you're getting at, but that would be my reaction to that. But yeah, with triangulation and differentiation, those definitely open up a, those are technical words from systems theory. You know, churches breed triangulation. Mm. Um People love to talk about each other rather than to each other, and never more so than in a church. I'm trying to figure out why churches seem to attract it more than other organizations. I haven't cracked that nut yet, but we we do. It's a big problem.
1: Steve, I think that is really rich um, information. For our listeners, would you just give us like how you would define triangulation or differentiation so that like that we're all on the same page of understanding those terms.
2: Yeah. Yeah, triangulation at its core is any relationship that has three or more people in it that should only have two people in it. So there are triangles, like my wife and I are in a triangle with our daughter. She's the only child at home now. Our boys are gone. There's nothing wrong with that. That's a triangle. But we become triangulated if my daughter comes to me and says don't tell mom but and is secret keeping or complaining about her if there's a collusion between any two that affect the third person triangulation can get sophisticated maybe the simplest triangulation you know is when you're in middle school and um sally comes up to peter and says do you like jane because if you like jane i'll go tell jane that's a triangulated relationship like Go tell Jane yourself, get out of the way. But of course, teenagers naturally triangulate because they feel so insecure. They're always looking for, do I belong? And so they do tend to talk about each other in all these ways. I think church triangulation happens so much. So people feel like having direct, difficult conversations with each other is somehow unchristian. And so they gossip about each other instead. So that's triangulation. And then sometimes it can get nuanced where I've had this happen where somebody will come and as the pastor, they'll come and vent to me about a person and I'm just listening. I'm just caring for them. But then they'll come away and call that person and they'll say, me and Steve were talking about and we think this. And I'm like, wait a minute. I wasn't saying anything. I was just listening to you as your pastor, but they've triangulated me against their friend. They've weaponized me against their friend. So that's triangulation. Differentiation is a different thing. It's the commitment. It's quite a difficult thing. Differentiation is the commitment to not spread anxiety and not catch anxiety while staying connected to yourself, to God, and to the other. So a lot of people think of differentiation as a boundary, but it's actually at heart a goal of connection. But you're it's the commitment that I am not going to dump my reactivity on you. Yeah. And I am not, you can come at me reactive, but I'm going to work on not catching it. Because reactivity or chronic anxiety is contagious. So differentiation is and and the beginning when you first start practicing it. It's like, how do I connect to you without spreading my anxiety and catching yours? So sometimes the easiest way to see differentiation is the opposite. So the Gilmore Girls would be a great example of an undifferentiated relationship. Emily Gilmore and Lorelei Gilmore are very rapidly catching and escalating each other's anxiety. If one of them would just say, I'm actually going to stay connected to you and not get reactive. But then... Uh, Richard Gilmore, the dad, he is detached. He's not connected. He's like disconnected, but he's not anxious. Or in family systems language, he's so anxious, he has to disconnect and appear not anxious. Uh, So differentiation is a very difficult middle of managing my anxiety and not catching yours and then staying very connected to myself, connected to you, connected to God, System theory is a secular theory, but they point to Jesus of Nazareth as the number one example of a differentiated person. I find that fascinating.
3: It's very interesting. I just did, uh, so help me, Todd. I don't know if anybody's watched that show or not, but another great study in what you're talking about. It just, the first season just ended a lawyer who controls the two daughters, one in mesh, the other one is totally detached, the son is the quiet guy. So uh, I think it helps people to get visuals like this in case someone's listening and is, and is, and is watching that or is seeing that. If they go back, they'll go, oh, that's exactly what Steve's talking about.
0: Hey folks, this is a great conversation with our guest and we don't want you to miss any of it. So we want to break here and bring you the rest of this conversation next week. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to like and support this ministry. In the meantime, reach out to someone outside of your family of churches and grab a cup of coffee. Thank you for listening to the Common Grounds Unity podcast. Please check out commongroundunity.org to learn more about who we are. You can subscribe to the essays, join our Facebook group, or find our YouTube channel. And please check out the gatherings page where you can connect with other unity-minded Christians in your area. If you want to volunteer or ask questions, please email john at commongroundsunity.org. And lastly, we need your help by donating to this ministry of reconciliation. Your donation is tax-deductible. Links for donating are in the show notes or on our website. Until next time, God bless. And remember, unity starts with a cup of coffee.